This is R.J. Rushdooney, Easy Chair Number 43, April 26, 1983. Last time we were together, Mark dealt with his visit to Bangladesh and some of the events taking place there. We have a postscript to add to that. We've had word from Bangladesh that the Bangladesh government has told 1,400 families that they can buy their land back and return to their homes. These are 1,400 Christian families whom they feel are sufficiently uh, harmless that they will release from the grouping centers, their name for concentration camps, and they're allowing them to buy their farms back. Since these people have had a problem with having enough to eat, buying their farms back is going to be a serious problem. And of course, when the Bangladesh government has confiscated their properties once, what is to prevent them from confiscating them all over again once the people have bought them back? So much for the generous move by the Bangladesh government towards the tribal peoples who are in the government grouping centers. A good word coined by them for concentration camps built with American funds. Then another item, I dealt with immigration and I had a very interesting letter from one of you, Howard Phillips, the national director of the conservative caucus. And he described his uh, meeting at the Harvard Kennedy Center, uh, sitting around the table with a number of liberals, and their self-centered view of the world was very clearly manifested. And Howard goes on to say, we could make no greater mistake than to ally ourselves with those who find it inconvenient to bid welcome to refugees from communism and socialism. What especially upset them was my contention that, in addition to permitting entrance to refugees and working with families, churches, and other organizations to help them get on their feet, we ought to abolish all forms of federal welfare for immigrants as well as for our own citizens. While the liberals oppose immigration, they favor welfareizing, federally and otherwise, uh, those who do get through, unquote. Now, the point is very well taken. What some of us forget is that immigration has a very long history in uh, the history of the world. And as a matter of fact, if you go back and include all the migrations, including mass military migrations of Asiatic peoples into Europe, and you have the relics of that today in that the Finns and the Hungarians are an origin Oriental people speaking an Oriental language. And that of many other groups. You realize that immigration is not something new. It has taken place over and over again. The Roman Empire absorbed untold numbers of alien peoples 
It made them a part of the empire until Rome no longer was able to maintain its faith in itself, its faith in any form of religion, its faith in anything except its own selfish ends. Then there was no longer a melting pot, no longer an absorption. Now, this has happened over and over again in history, irrespective of the background of the peoples. If they come into another country and they move where they believe there is a superior form of life, they want to adopt the way of life of those peoples, unless those people are coasting on the past and have lost their own faith and their will to live. Now, that's our problem today. It's not the immigrants. The problem is that we as a people have abandoned the faith. We have created a humanistic society. We have nothing that we can perpetuate that is any good, and as a result, we cannot absorb any people because they're a threat to us. But consider Canada. Canada is further down the road than the United States, and it does not have a problem of masses of peoples of another race or of illegal aliens. Its problem is that the Canadians, having lost their faith, are incapable of sustaining an ongoing civilization. Now, that's our problem here, too. If we as a Christian people revive our foundations in God and his law, then we will be strong and we will have a faith so attractive that every legal and illegal alien who comes into the United States will want to be a part of that. That's the way it was over the generations. It will continue to be so. The same has been true in every other part of the world. Now let's take a classic example today of a very unequal situation, South Africa. Now South Africa today is treating the minorities or the majorities because the blacks are in the majority far better than it did 20 and 30 years ago better than it did 50 years ago, but it's having problems. Why? Because at the same time, there is a weakening of its priorities. Its religious priorities are not as strong. Now, as long as the people of Africa, the South Africa, the Afrikaans, had a strong sense of their faith and their faith had a priority over their race. They attracted Africans. They had illegal Afri black Africans coming across the border in great numbers all the time, but eager to be a part, even in an inferior status, of a strong and virile culture. That's the key, a virile culture a culture that has a strong faith and knows how to communicate it will always sustain itself. But when the culture grows weak, 
it is easily overwhelmed. Well, now on to some other things, but first let me make this note. Any of the books that we mention in the Chalcedon Report or the book notices or on these e easy chair talks can be purchased from a very good friend of Chalcedon's, Mrs. Ann Stropini. The Heritage Bookshop, 2427-B as in boy, Marconi Avenue, Sacramento, California, 95821. And their telephone is 916-487-8944. Now, these books will cost you the postage, and in some instances there will be no discount because many university presses do not give a discount. Before going any further, I'd like to deal with an important book that I haven't read. <laughs> it's a book I've been waiting for. I picked it up in a San Francisco bookstore yesterday. It just came out this month, Derek Freeman, Margaret Mead and Samoa, The Making and Unmaking of an Anthropological Myth. The book was published um, this year by Harvard University Press for $20. Now, before the book came out, it was being savagely attacked. As a matter of fact, the Smithsonian uh, Magazine for April 1983 has a long article on the uh, book entitled Storm Over Margaret Mead's Samoa by Jane Howard. The interesting thing is this article, very hostile really, uh, marshals a tremendous amount of scientific opinion as to why uh, the book is bad. Now, before we go into the reasons cited, let me tell you a little bit about the book. Uh, without having read it, but just having read long reviews and articles about it. Margaret Mead, in 1928, wrote her coming of age in Samoa, which very quickly became a very influential book. In fact, our whole sexual revolution comes out of Margaret Mead's work. Margaret Mead has been a high priestess of the sexual revolution, very influential in World Council of uh, Churches circles and in a variety of causes. Margaret Mead went to Samoa and supposedly investigated the life of the Samoans. Supposedly, the Samoans had an open sexuality, no taboos, uh, freedom to fornicate and to copulate both before and after marriage at will. And supposedly, this produced none of the storm and stress of adolescence. It produced a very happy, congenial people without any mental problems. Well, the fact is, as Professor Freeman shows, Margaret Mead's book was 
false. She did not do the research she claims to have done. She manufactured her evidence, and her book reflected wishful thinking rather than reality. As a result, the book has created quite a storm. And as Jane Howard reports it, and she shares the attitude of critics, uh, Margaret Mead still did a great work somehow. And uh, somehow there was a truth to the book that was a higher truth than uh, anything Mr. Freeman has declared. Uh, was fallacious about it. The fact that she falsified her data does not invalidate for these people the scientific validity of her conclusions. The point is, of course, they want the sexual revolution. They want everything that uh, Margaret Mead fought for, and they will not have the underpinnings of it uh, destroyed. Now, when I bought this book in San Francisco yesterday, the aging and effeminate clerk, or perhaps owner, who was at the cash register, expressed shock that that book was on the table. And he said, I didn't know we were carrying that book. And then he expressed dismay that it was on the shelf and tried to discourage me from buying it. He insisted that the book was altogether wrong. Why? Well, in spite of anything that he said in a very girlish accent, that uh, Dr. Freeman may have discovered about uh, the factual basis the principle is right. In other words, the fact that Margaret Mead's data was fraudulent and no such society as she pictured existed did not invalidate the principle that mental health comes out of a total regard for God's laws with regard to sexuality. Now that's faith. And that's the kind of thing that is so prevalent today. You can be sure that Dr. Freeman is not popular in the scientific circles, and this book will be regarded as a disaster, a serious error, and so on. He will perhaps wind up being a non-person like Dr. Curry, who exposed... Uh, Benjamin Franklin as a British agent throughout the War of Independence. Well, to continue, I'd like to call your attention to an interesting article in Natural History for May 1983. It is by Jack C. Schultz, Tree Tactics. That's a very interesting book uh, article. They have found that... Uh, Trees are not as helpless as we think they are. They don't necessarily need all the spraying we give them. For example, he points out that the white pine is 
uh, uh, protects itself against gypsy moth larvae. The new needles have a defensive chemical in them. The older needles are alone vulnerable. So the gypsy moth larvae cleans the tree of the older uh, needles. Moreover, an oak tree has toxic chemicals in its leaves to take care of the insects that might affect it. And this is true also of a wide variety of other trees. They do have defense mechanisms so that there is built into nature a great deal of protection for the various species. Only as they decline in their health or are affected by other circumstances do they become vulnerable. Now to go on to still another matter. One of the interesting books on the Soviet Union published recently is by Helene Carrera de and Kos. I'll spell that name, Helene Carrere, C-A-R-R-E-R-E, and then D apostrophe, capital E-N-C-A-U-S-S-E. Confiscated Power, How Soviet Russia Really Works. Published by Harper and Rowe for 1995 and um, released in 1982. This is not as interesting a book as some of the others. A great many very important books on the Soviet Union have been released lately, and I'll deal with another of them next time, a very important one. But the book deals with the fact that the Soviet Union governs in the name of the people. But the people and the state are two different things. The Communist Party uh, supposedly governs, but and the party ostensibly is infallible, but increasingly it is a limited group at the top. From the beginning, in varying degrees, it has been from the top down. But over the decades, the ability for protest to express itself on the bottom has been increasingly throttled. And what we have is a self-perpetuating solidarity, he declares. Now, he calls attention to the gerontocracy, the fact that you have an elderly group ruling in the Kremlin. The meaning of this, he says, is very different from a gerontocracy elsewhere. We have had elderly men in positions of power more than once in the Western world, Adenauer, for example, in West Germany. But these men got there because of their excellence. In the Soviet Union, the fact is no one can threaten them. You have Brezhnev, who for several years before his death, at times it gave evidence of senility. There were times when at public affairs he spoke in a slurred speech and did not seem to have his wits about him, but no one dared overthrow him or ask for his resignation. 
Thus the gerontocracy, the rule of the elderly, in the Soviet Union is very unlike that of the rule of the elderly in Japan. In Japan, when an executive passes the age of 55, he can be dropped with a year's notice any time. But once they pass 55, instead of coasting to retirement at 65, as they do in the United States, they become more aggressive. Most of the initiative of the elderly in Japan, as I have said before, has been due to the fact that these older men know that they have to continue to be aggressive and innovative to stay at the top. And as a result, you have men in their 90s heading major corporations in Japan. Now, that kind of rule by the elderly is due to character, to ability, to a continuing leadership. But in the Soviet Union, once men gain power, they are frozen into that position by the very power they exercise. No matter how incompetent they are, they cannot be challenged. And as a result, because power has been confiscated at every level except the top, you have a growing crisis in the Soviet Union. It's growing irrelevance to the problems because the leadership at the top creates the problems. It will not change. And so it only clobbers the people at the bottom. However, the concluding paragraph of the book is very telling because the point that Don Cass makes is, and I quote, real change is possible only if it begins in the USSR. Simultaneously weak and powerful, the USSR has based its power above all on the in impotence of the capitalist world, and it justifies the continuation of a weakened and challenged system by invoking the weakness and challenges to the alternative system. Is the future of the USSR in the end not contained in the framework of East-West relations defined as a competition of decadence, which amounts once again to asking Lenin's question, who will be the first, the USSR or the West, to be defeated by its own decline? Unquote. This is an important book uh, by a woman who wrote previously an excellent book on decline of an empire, also on the Soviet Union. Now to another subject, a very interesting book, The Return to Camelot, Chivalry and the English Gentleman, by Mark Girard, G-I-R-O-U-A-R-D, published by the Yale University Press in 1981. This is a book on the Revival of the Idea of Chivalry as the ideal for English gentlemen and for English rulers. This very much dominated the last century and World War I. Digby, the man who 
was responsible for this revival to a great extent, also despised money-making. And this became a part of the character of anyone of note in England to despise money-making. This did not keep them from a tremendous greed for money and a very great uh, desire to marry money at all times and to think about money continually, but ostensibly you never mentioned it. Money was a profane subject to talk about. You had at the same time the revival of interest in chivalry as depicted in Sir Walter Scott's novels. The net result of all of this was an unrealism in the leadership of England. They lost the capacity to think in terms of the real world, of capital and labor, of commerce, and of the problems of social classes. It led them to a world of unreality, which included the public school homosexuality. It led to dabbling in all kinds of unrealistic nonsense, so there was no real awareness of the world around them. I think Gerard's book should be considered by historians as they deal with the origins of World War I. Because, as he points out, there was such an unrealism about war, and this same kind of thinking also characterized Germany and Austria. I don't know about France. That there was a stumbling into war as though they were going to a tournament for knights. And men like W.E. Henley, the humanist who wrote Invictus, could actually invoke the Almighty in 1892, even though he didn't believe in God. Give us war, O Lord, for England's sake, war righteous and true, our hearts to shake. And he wrote also such things as the Song of the Sword, so that when World War I broke out. The men who commanded the thinking of England, the writers and the artists, the publicists, the nobility, welcomed war. They saw it as the real, the highest, the honestest business of every son of man, as one of them put it. And so they volunteered in great numbers to be slaughtered. And they went on volunteering, Gerard says, even when it became clear how many of them were going to die. And so a generation sacrificed themselves under the illusions created by literary men. Well, the book is a telling one, and chivalry itself received its death wound. The result was that when the war was over, there were still some ready to echo the language of chivalry. 
but all the faith and the fervor in it was gone. And now they were in the grim world that their humanism had created, and their dreams of chivalry could never alter it. It's a very important work. Now, on to something of a different sort. Uh, California Senator H.L. Richardson puts out his Richardson Report, a conservative commentary, and Bill is an exceptionally able writer. Not too long ago, he dealt with the fact of prisons and how prisoners are given a very careful treatment by the courts and by the people that many citizens do not get. He had a very interesting response. Stacks of letters and telephone calls, especially some from employees of the Department of Corrections, men who work in prisons. Let me quote from a part of Richardson's report. Of the people who have read your article, all are in, agree in agreement with your logic and are very impressed that there is someone in government that sees it the way it really is. Every inmate that has a job and assignment gets paid an hourly rate and is also eligible for unemployment compensation for half the time he is in prison. How about those for interesting comments? Being told that inmates get unemployment compensation for half the time they are in prison. The letter goes on to say, I know that your article is speaking mainly to SB 50 and not the way the state agencies are run and money wasted. For instance, every time there is a riot or disturbance, TVs are generally broken or thrown off the tiers. The first order of cleanup or repair is to replace the TVs back into the dorms. Inmates are also given the highest pay numbers and put on special crews with privileges to repair damages to the institution after a disturbance of which they were a part. How about that? They destroy their own TV sets and more than are paid for repairing them. Another quote. Just last week, our supervisor finally completed our vacation schedule, which was due in January. The problem was, with only one relief instructor, only one class could be closed at a time. Most people want vacations during the summer so they can be with their families when school is out for vacation. Inmates are telling us when we can go on vacations. You can imagine how frustrated the correctional officers get over that one. End of quote. Much more like that. And uh, then, well, this one item from another letter, and I quote, I'm sure you could find many ex-prisoner of wars in California who would be glad to serve as consultants on prison design, on humane treatment, and on work for the common good. The man who wrote this is hardly sympathetic to the criminal element. He and many others are fed up with the crocodile tears that have been shed for those who murder, rob, and wait, rape. We should be working our convict population 
48 hours a week to help defray the costs they have imposed upon the innocent, unquote. Well, there is much, much more that I could deal with, but I'm going to turn to a lighter vein now. One of the books I picked up yesterday is a lightweight book. I'm not recommending it. It's, uh, if you can borrow it, get it, and you'll get a few laughs out of it. It's David Frost's Book of the World's Worst Decisions, just published. There are a few of his facts in some of the accounts he has that are in error, but I like this one, The Body in Question. In 1910, Olaf Olafsson, a Swedish citizen, fell upon hard times and decided to sell his body for medical research after his death to the Karolinska Institute in Stockholm. The following year, he inherited a fortune and resolved to buy himself back. The Institute refused to sell its rights to his body, went to court, and won possession of it. Moreover, the Institute obtained damages since Olav had had two teeth pulled out without asking their permission as ultimate owners of his body. <laughs> I thought that was choice, and I like this one on the planned economy. In 1974, the Nigerian government decided to initiate a third national Nigerian development plan intended to bring the country at a single leap into line with most developed Western nations. The planners calculated that to build the new roads, airfields, and military buildings, which the plan required would call for some 20 million tons of cement. This was duly ordered and shipped by freighters from all over the world to be unloaded at Lagos docks. Unfortunately, the Nigerian planners had not considered the fact that the docks were only capable of handling 2,000 tons a day. They had ordered 20 million. Working every day, it would have taken 27 years to unload just the ships that it were one point waiting at sea off Lagos. These contained a third of the world's supply of cement much of it showing its fine quality by setting solid in the holds of the freighters." Unquote. <laughs> that is the fine art of state planning. Aren't you glad we have our share of them in Washington to look after us? The book does have a number of delightful cases of the world's worst decisions. Uh, how someone sold the rights to RCA for the recordings of a young man with prominent sideburns who had done some recordings for $35,000. The man was Elvis Presley. So he was forfeiting all his royalties on more than a billion records and selling out the young man. Then another episode... Uh, 
of the actress who was offered a lead to, uh, on Broadway in a new musical called My Fair Lady. But uh, her organization refused. They said, no, a musical of Pygmalion? Who on earth would want to go and see that? It could do your career immense damage. No, unquote. Uh, now, of course, you don't hear of the actress, uh, Jeanette Scott. Uh, many other such episodes. Another uh, about... Uh, Fred Astaire, who was turned down by MGM years ago in the 30s on the decision, that guy has enormous ears and a bad chin line. He'll never make it. And, of course, the San Francisco Examiner in 1889 turned down one article of Rudyard Kipling and refused to accept any more, saying, I'm sorry, Mr. Kipling, but you just don't know how to use the English language. And Charles Lawton turned down the role of the troubled colonel on the bridge on the River Kwai, saying he did not understand the role. Much more that way about bad decisions. Of course, David Frost says the first bad decision began in the Garden of Eden when Eve bit. Well, uh... Now to go on to something else that is a particular delight to me. I'm going to turn now to uh, a book by John Thorne, T-H-O-R-N, A Century of Baseball Lore, published by Galahad Books, 95 Madison Avenue, New York, New York, 10016 published in 1980. I don't know the price of the book, but since baseball season has begun, this is the time to think a little bit about some of the humor in baseball. I first began to see big league baseball in Detroit in the late 20s and then into the early 30s. There is a difference. I think the players today are uh, equally good, if not better. But in the 20s and 30s, there was sometimes a lot of horseplay and clowning that managers today would not tolerate. And this book has some of the delightful stories about baseball in those days. So I'm going to read a few episodes. Uh, first of all, this one about the spitball. The last of the spitball pitchers has allegedly vanished from the major leagues, and the saliva delivery is now banned by the rules. When the, in the spitballer's heyday, the unpredictable behavior of the moistened pitch had many a batter grinding his teeth. Fred Luderus, first sacker of the Phillies, found one answer to the problem. He fought water with fire. It was in a 1912 game against the Pirates' Marty O'Toole, a very effective spitball pitcher. O'Toole's moistening technique was to hold the ball up to his face and lick it directly with his tongue. 
Then he would wind up and send the dampened pill on its eccentric course to the plate. When the fillies took the field, Luterus carried in his back pocket a tube of liniment. Every time the ball came his way, <laughs> the first baseman would rub a little of the fiery ointment into the horse hide. In those days, a single ball might stay in play for a full nine innings. Before the third inning was over, O'Toole's tongue was raw and inflamed, and he had to be taken out of the box. Manager Fred Clark of the Pirates squawked to high heaven. He protested that the use of the liniment was illegal and a threat to eyesight, peace of mind, and the Constitution. But Charlie Doolin, Philly manager, indignantly rejected Clark's protest. I ordered Luteris to do it to protect my boys, he proclaimed self-righteously. Why, that nasty habit of O'Toole's was putting millions of germs on every pitch. And he concluded, every time O'Toole spits on that ball, we're going to disinfect it. There is nothing in the rules that says we don't have the right to protect our health. And there isn't. <laughs> now, this one I am very fond of. It's a story I remember from way back. It has often been told. Uh, Gabby Street was known for once catch catching a ball dropped from the top of the Washington Monument. Not to be outdone, Dodger manager Wilbert Robinson, a former backstop himself, announced that he would attempt to catch a ball dropped from an airplane. The arrangements were made, and the players gathered around as Robbie stood with a mitt in the center of the spring training diamond at Clearwater, Florida. The big moment arrived. The plane flew overhead, and Uncle Robbie braced himself for the catch as the sphere came down. But the player up in the plane had substituted an enormous grapefruit for the baseball. It landed on top of Robbie's head with a tremendous thud and splattered all over him. Momentarily knocked clear out of his senses, Robinson dropped to the turf. When he came to, he looked up at the concerned faces of the players and murmured, I'd have caught that ball for sure if there hadn't been that damn cloudburst. <laughs> Well, this one about one of the great pitchers of all time, if not the greatest, Walter Johnson. For the most part, there wasn't anything tricky about Walter Johnson's delivery. He just threw a fastball. If that didn't work, he threw a faster one. That didn't give batters much comfort, and comfort but it did provide them with a ready-made alibi. How can you hit him if you can't see him? In one game, Ray Chapman took two burning strikes from Johnson. Then he stepped out of the batter's box and started for the dugout. Wait a minute, called the umpire. You've got another strike coming. Never mind, said Chapman. I don't want it. That was Chapman's privilege. But Walter Johnson had no objection to giving batters their full allotment of three strikes. In his 21-year career, the big train dished out 3,508 strikeouts, a record that looks safe for all time.
During that time, Johnson led the uh, league in uh, uh, strikeouts for 12 years. The great Washington uh, right-hander was never out to set records. His object was to win ball games. That he did, chalking up 414 victories for a generally weak Washington club. In one memorable game, it looked as though the big train was about to be derailed. The bases had suddenly filled with Red Sox on an error, a hit batter, and a base on balls, all charged to Johnson. To make things darker, none were out. Shortstop George McBride called time and walked in to give Johnson a few well-meant words of advice. Now, now, George, Johnson chided, Suppose you go back and play shortstop, and let me do the pitching. The big train then opened the throttle and fanned Tris Speaker, Harry Hooper, and Duffy Lewis on nine straight pitches. Johnson was the greatest goose-egg merchant the game has ever known. Sir Walter hung up a lifetime record of 113 shutout games. When he was really hot, opposing players would touch their spikes on the plate for luck. That was the best they could do. They couldn't touch it to score. For a period of over a month, from April 10 to May 14, 1913, no one pushed across a single run against Johnson. When the Browns finally managed to drive a tally across the plate in the fourth inning of a lopsided game on May 14, they ended Johnson's staggering streak of 56 scoreless innings. No pitcher was able to match this magnificent performance for 55 years. Well, another one of the great figures of baseball back in those days, in the 20s and 30s, was Babe Herman with the Brooklyn Dodgers. I haven't seen it uh, recorded in this book yet. I'm not quite through with the book, but I couldn't wait to share it with you. But I recall that Babe Herman once actually stole a base backwards. I think he was on second and he stole first, something like that. That gives you an idea of what a zany player he was. Well, now to quote Thorne. In the late 20s, the Dodgers and the Pirates were locked in a close game at Pittsburgh's Forbes Field. Trailing 2-1 to one in the ninth, the Bucks put two men aboard with two out but the rally seemed to die as Pie Trainer drove a liner toward Babe Herman in the outfield, which appeared to be a sure out. But the Babe charged, tripped, and fell flat on his face. As the ball rolled to the fence, the winning runs crossed the plate. The Dodgers trudged to the clubhouse in defeat, but the compassionate Dodger manager, Wilbert Robinson, put his arm around Herman. What happened, Babe, he asked. When, Babe replied. <laughs> now to one or two more episodes. Uh, this from a game that I heard over the radio in those days. That was long before TV. And uh, it was a great game. And I quote now, 
The fans could scarcely believe their ears when the starting battery for the athletics was announced. This was in a World Series game in 1929. In the Philadelphia dugout, the players were staring at each other in dismay. Across the field on the Cubs bench, the jubilation was unrestrained. Old Howard Emke was going to start the 1929 series opener. Someone must be crazy, and that someone could only be Connie Mack. It was true that Emke had once been a stellar moundsman, but everyone knew he was through. That season he had pitched only two complete games for the A's. When the club took its final western swing, Emke hadn't even been taken along. Everybody knew Emke was a has-been, but here he was, about to start the all-important first game of the series. Connie Mack had sent Howard Emke to scout the Cubs, who had already clinched the National League flag. If Emke felt that his old soup bone could go the route, Mack had promised to start him. Maybe it was a sentimental promise, but Mack was as good as his word. Few would have been surprised to see the old-timer blasted out of the box in the first inning that October 8, 1929. But as the afternoon wore on, Emke proved that his old craft was still there. His long rest and the rays of a warm autumn sun combined to loosen up and restore zip to the old muscles. Inning after inning, the baffled cubs went down before the old master's sleight of hand. They got hits, yes, eight of them. But in the pinch, old Howard still had what it takes. He fanned the great Rogers, Roger Hornsby twice. Slugging champ Hack Wilson also took the three-strike treatment on two trips to the plate. Going into the ninth, Emke had fanned 12 men, tying the World Series record set in 1906 by Big Ed Walsh. The Cubs had yet to score. But in the ninth, it began to look as the, though the old firehorse had shot his bolt. With the A's guarding a three-to-nothing lead, the Cubs began to reach Emke. The rescue squad began to warm up in the A's bullpen. The Cubs had shoved a run across the plate. With two out and the tying runs on base, a Cub pitch hitter came to bat. Could old Howard bear down just once more? Did he have enough reserve to come through in the pinch? The washed-out old vet summoned all the experience of his years, and the last ounce of energy left in his quivering frame. In spite of themselves, the Chicago fans couldn't help cheering as the pinch hitter went down swinging for the thirteenth strikeout of the game a World Series record that stood for more than 20 years. Connie Mack had gambled on getting one more good performance out of the fading Howard Emke. A great pitcher hurled an immortal game, the last he ever won. Well, another interesting item concerns... Uh, Luke Appling. Uh, this is a choice one. Luke Appling uh, was a remarkable player. Uh, 
Though Luke Appling made it to Cooperstown on the strength of his 310 lifetime average in his 21 years as the shortstop of the Chicago White Sox, he deserved a niche in the Hall of Fame merrily for his uncanny ability to hit foul balls. In years past, the Yankees were rather miserly when it came to doling out free passes to the visiting team. When Lucius learned that his request for two passes to the ball game had been denied, he knew how to exact revenge. He stepped into the cage for batting practice and proceeded to ram 25 straight foul balls into the stands at $2 per ball. Naturally, those balls were supplied by the Yanks. When Yankee officials upstairs realized that Appling was making them pay $50 for the two passes they denied him, they immediately sent down word that he could have his free tickets any time. On another occasion, Appling waited for the game to start before tormenting the Yanks. Coming to bat in the bottom of the first on a hot day in Chicago, Luke was up against Red Ruffing with two on and two out. The Yankee ace zipped in two quick strikes and Appling was in the hole. He fouled off the next four pitches, then took a called ball one. Then he fouled off six more. Ruffing issued ball two, followed by ball three. The next fourteen pitches came in over the plate and Appling fouled off every one. At last, ex thoroughly exasperated, Ruffing gave Appling ball four. The next batter to face the arm-weary pitcher was Mike uh, Krevich, and Mike doubled to clear the bases. When manager Joe McCarthy lifted Ruffing for a reliever, Red left the mound screaming at Appling, who was sitting placidly in the dugout. You did it! You did it with those blankety-blank foul pitches, balls. <laughs> and then uh, Dizzy Dean, of course, was one of the greats. And always a lot of fun. And with this, I think I'll close and go on reading the book by myself. <laughs> When Dizzy Dean first came to the majors, he used to leave his teammates dumbfounded with his brash conceit. Dizzy regarded himself as the best pitcher that ever lived, and he didn't mind telling that to anybody. And the funny part of it is, his boast wasn't far from the truth. When Dean was just a rookie with the St. Louis Cards and had only been with the club a couple of weeks, the catcher, Jimmy Wilson, noticed that a couple of his rather expensive sh silk shirts were missing. The loss baffled Wilson until one fine morning he found Dizzy wearing one of his prized possessions. He grabbed the young hillbilly, hillbilly and was about to commit mayhem when Dean protested. Now, Jimmy, said Diz, you're a pretty good sort, and you wouldn't want the greatest pitcher that ever lived to go around poorly dressed, would you? You'd want the very best kind of shirt for a pitcher who's better than Matheson or Johnson, now wouldn't you, Jiminy? You know I'm better than those guys ever was, so why shouldn't I be wearing silk shirts? Wilson was so flabbergasted by Dean's sincere conceit that he couldn't help burst out laughing. So he asked, How many shirts did you swipe, Dizzy? Two, answered Dean, only two. Wilson then turned to the eccentric farm boy and said, Dizzy, you know, come to think of it, two silk shirts really aren't enough for a pitcher who's greater than Johnson and Matthewson. 
put together. Come around, and I'll give you another one. And a few days later, that's exactly uh, what Dean did. He wasn't embarrassed in the least. For make no mistake about it, Dean was one of the greatest hurlers of all time. Some pretty wise baseball man, men claimed that he was definitely the greatest pitcher of his era. In his career, Dean performed miracles. He and his brother Paul boosted the St. Louis Cards from mediocrity to a world championship. At the beginning of the 1934 season, Diz brashly announced that me and Paul is going to win 45 games. Diz was wrong. That season, he and his brother won 49 games. When the pennant was clinched, Diz sounded off again. Who's going to win the World Series? Me and Paul. They did too. In the seven-game series, Jerome Dean and his brother Paul won all four Cardinal victories. Once the Dean duet pitched a doubleheader against the Dodgers, Dizzy hurled the first game, allowing the Dodgers three scattered hits. In the follow-up, Paul pitched a no-hitter. The elder Dean, watching the proceedings, complained, I wished I'd have known Paul was going to pitch a no-hitter. I'd have pitched one, too. Like most of baseball zanies, Dean was often a tremendous headache to his manager, but the Cardinal mentor, Frankie Frisch, had a knack for handling the great screwball. Once in the middle of a tough pennant drive, manager Frisch slapped a midnight curfew on the team. Came twelve o'clock and four members of the team had not shown up at the hotel. Prominent among the missing was a fellow named Dean. When the four malefactors drifted back sometime in the a.m., Frisch was waiting for them. After a few well-chosen words, Frisch fined the offending $200 apiece. Dizzy drew a $400 fine. Dizzy, brooding about the injustice of this inequality, went to Frisch next day and complained. After all, he said, it ain't like I was uh, doing something different than those other three guys but you find them just $200, and you threw a $400 fine at me. It just ain't right. Frisch threw an arm around Dean's shoulder. Why, Diz, he remonstrated. You're not the same as those other guys. You're the star of the team. You're the great Dizzy Dean. Everything about you has got to be bigger and better than anybody else, and that goes for the fines, too. Diz hesitated a moment, and then his face lighted up. Danged if you're not right, Frank, he said. Convinced, he went off beaming. <laughs> well, for those of you who don't enjoy baseball, thanks for your indulgence and patience. And for all of you, many thanks. It's good to be with you again. And I'll have more for you two weeks hence. Thanks, God bless you, and goodbye.